UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues. Not that long ago, an artist whose music I love announced that she was no longer in a position to consider herself a follower of Jesus. She was deconstructing her faith. Part of the reason for this disavowing of faith was the hypocrisy, pressure and perhaps even emotional abuse that she saw and experienced in the purity movement. Now, how do you answer somebody struggling with the idea of purity? Because moral integrity, purity, is important, and we wouldn't want to undermine that, especially in this over-sexualized world in which we live. Well, Kat Harris is developing a bit of a following around this, her willingness to talk in an open, frank and balanced way about faith, and one of the most powerful drivers in human nature, has endeared her to many, has provoked more than a few, and has given a voice to hundreds of single Christian in the main women who feel that the church and its teaching on sex, passion and temptation does not understand the realities of staying pure as an adult for decades before marriage, doesn't understand the impact that that teaching can have on couples after marriage, and doesn't always understand just how deeply the scandal of teachers of this message when they show their own immorality having proclaimed a facade of moral integrity just how deeply that can have an effect on the way that we view a loving god her book is called sexless in the city clever title and you can find out more about cat and her podcast by going to her website therefinedwoman.com And as she regularly talks about things like masturbation and dismantling toxic purity culture messages and the lies that go into body shaming, this promises to be something of a grown-up conversation. Kat, welcome to Life Issues. Thank you so much for having me. And wow, when you put it like that, I'm I'm talking about some pretty controversial stuff, I guess. Well, I think it is fair to say that many people think you talk about controversial stuff, but... It does seem that in doing that, you've given a voice to the frustration and the the, sometimes the feeling of isolation that many Mm -hmm. single Christian women face. Did you set out to provide a voice for the voiceless? (laughs) No, not at all. And I feel like I... It just makes me laugh because it's the last thing I wanted to do (laughs) or be. And... And really for me, this, this was a personal journey. I never wanted this to be a book. I never wanted, wanted this to be a part of my public life. I was at a point in my life around eight years ago when I moved to New York City where I dated more in one year than I had in a decade and really found, was finding myself at a crossroads in my faith. I grew up in Southern Christian purity culture in Texas and America. And I never really questioned the narratives given to me about sex, dating, gender roles, the role of women, physical boundaries and dating, really none of those things until I was almost 30 years old. And um, so when I found myself at this crossroads, it was actually my best friend who is not a Christian who really encouraged me to 
really figure out what I believed. And I basically went to her because I thought, oh, if there's anyone who will support me moving forward in my dating life, having sex, it's going to be my best friend who has a lot of sex and is not a Christian. And yet I went to her and she said, no, I'm not going to support you doing that. She said, for some reason, I don't understand why this has been a really high value for you. And you need to read your Bible pray to your Jesus, figure out what you believe and why, and then we can have a conversation about mm. that. And so what I thought was going to be a you know 30-minute Google search and quiet time with God turned into a total life-transforming moment and a six, seven-year journey of researching what does the scripture say about sex and intimacy? What does science say? What is, what does my own experience say? And so, no, I've been a, I've been a editorial and lifestyle photographer for 15 years. I wasn't honest on, (laughs) on the interwebs about my dating life. And so, no, I never, I never set out to do this publicly. It was more, I am a question asker and I always want to know why. And so I started asking why in my own life. So the title of the book, I mean, was it really that you were the antithesis of Carrie and her friends in Sex and the City? I don't think I was the antithesis. I feel like I was doing everything they were doing but having sex. I was living in New York City. I was going out with my girlfriends, going to bars, dancing on tables, making out with guys that I would meet out and really having what I felt like was this, you know, sex in the city moment, quote unquote, I just wasn't having sex. And so it was, but then I got to a point where I was like, why am I not having sex? Mm. It seemed like all of my friends who did not identify as a person of faith, they were all having sex. And if I'm being honest, most of my friends in church were too. It's just that, that's not what you talk about at small group or uh, at church on Sundays. Everyone kind of puts their quote unquote best foot forward. And the more I was asking people, I thought, am I the only one still doing this? What's, what's happening? And, and really in the wakes of a very loud purity movement that had very loud rules about sex and physical boundaries and dating, I found myself almost 30 years old and never, ever hearing anything about sex from church or leaders. So it it felt like it was very loud growing up and then it got really silent. Mm. And one of the points that you make in the book, and, and, and it comes out very early on, is the frustration and outrage at the things that happened around the purity movement and the the people who taught things and the the lack of integrity there was in some of those people's lives but also the lack of understanding that there was to yeah. the reality of you know a 30 something year old woman in new york trying to to cope with the the realities of what are going on in our heart and our mind um but at the same time surely purity is it's a good thing to teach in a overly sexualized world, isn't it? Well, I think at least for me still, 
and I don't know what your listeners will think of this. I think the word purity still carries with it so much damage from purity culture that I have a hard time identifying with talking about purity when we're talking about sexuality or really any of our actions. I think I like to talk about sexual integrity and I think our sexual integrity really matters. But if I go to the scriptures, the only thing that makes me pure is Jesus. Because as far as the East is from the West, so far are my transgressions removed from me. So when we talk about purity in the sense of what I am or am not doing sexually, what it can really breed is a workspace salvation that says, Mm. well, it's actually not Jesus alone equals salvation or my seat at the table. It's Jesus plus virginity, Jesus plus what I am or am not doing sexually. And, and I think it's subtle, but it's there that if you want to have a seat at God's table, you better not be having sex or you better not be doing this. And so do I think sexual integrity is very important? Yes. But I really want to get away from this idea that I can earn or wiggle my way into God's favor through my purity. Do you think that perhaps part of the, maybe it's an understandable thing that it happened, but part of the problem with that sort of teaching emerging was that many parents were just desperate to try and, as the world became more promiscuous, almost scare their kids into maintaining some sort of sexual integrity, but fear is never really a good motivator, is it? That's that's so true, and that's so right. Whenever there's fear, on, whenever fear is the driving force, I can know right then and there that that's not God's heart for me. Even if we're having a good and true message, if it's rooted in fear, shame, condemnation, I know that that's not God's heart. God says that God didn't give me a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And unfortunately, in hopes of managing others or controlling others or making sure our our kids aren't getting pregnant in high school or when they're teenagers, I think the evangelical church created this campaign to get kids to not have sex until marriage with this, with an abstinence only sex ad, which really, if we're looking at research and statistics has only stopped sex for about a year or two. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done is we've created an outward in framework of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this in hopes that our our inner being will be transformed. And that's the opposite of the way of Jesus. Jesus starts with our heart. And so I, the more I've talked about this publicly, the more I understand why the church and our leaders said, just don't do this, do this, don't do this. This is bad. This is right. This is wrong because it's easier to teach to the masses. Yes, but yeah. the part that we're skipping is starting with the inner transformation that only God can, can do and equipping me, us, a generation to seek the heart of God. You're listening to UCB Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond speaking to Kat Harris about her book, Sexless in the City. Now, not just about her book, but also about some of the convictions and concerns she has about the way in which the church has functioned over the years, talking to young people, but also not so young people about the reality of sexual integrity. Her website is therefinedwoman.com. You can find out all about her book and her podcast there. And one of the things that's been said around the book 
is this. Sexless in the City is a layered and nuanced conversation around singleness and sex, dating and desire that people of faith need far more than they realise. This book normalises healthy discussion about sexuality without abandoning faith as irrelevant or dismissing scripture as antiquated because we probably should point out very clearly in this conversation cat you really do believe in a biblical morality around marriage and sex don't you well i would have a lot of questions about what you mean when you say that i feel like that's a loaded phrase but i will say that i i am choosing to abstain from sex until marriage and that is a that is a choice that I have made. And in my whole journey of what does the Bible really say about sex and what is God's heart about intimacy? I I've learned a lot of things, but I ended that journey, honestly, a little more conservative than when I started. And it felt like the cosmic joke was on me here. I, here I go to really try to prove my way or justify my way into being able to do whatever I wanted sexually. And I actually discovered in the pages of scripture and within the pages of my own story, so much beauty and wisdom of withholding from the physical for periods of time or in singleness. So, so yes, I I like to say that I'm choosing to abstain from sex until marriage because for so long, I felt like it was a decision made for me. Yes by Christianity that I didn't really have an inner conviction on. It just for me was, I want to be a good Christian and I wanted, I want to do, I want to follow the rules. And so when push came to shove, when I was actually dating, it was a lot harder to keep my clothes on because I had no conviction for it, but now I have an inside out conviction. And I think it's so important that we give each other this space to really ask these hard questions and come up with an inner conviction. Cause one of the things that does seem core for you, and I, I'm maybe sort of reading between the lines here, but I get the impression that you think the church has, I suppose in a sense, forgotten that it should support, guide, and empower single people in the experience of living with desire, as well as instruct about behavior. Is that true? Yeah, I think that, I think to be single in the church for me has often felt like I'm JV to the varsity or second string to the players on the field. And then add another layer to that, to be a single woman in the church has felt like, where's my place? I have experienced, and I know a lot of women have as well, not being, not given leadership positions, being kind of put in the background or while watching my friends that are married, get more, more positions, more access, more, more credibility because they have the, you know, quote unquote, spiritual covering of a spouse. And I think, so much of the church can revolve around the nuclear family and can revolve around marriage. And I think marriage is a beautiful thing. I think family is a beautiful thing. I hope to have both of my own one day. However, we've made something that's not the main thing, the main thing. 
And the proof is in the experience of singles. It's, it's okay. So when are you getting married and how, how come you're still single? How, how have you not been snatched up yet? And I'm, you know, I'm 36 now and I've been receiving those questions for 20 years now. And it seems like underneath that are questions like, is there something wrong with her? Is she doing something wrong? Whereas I, my experience is that men don't really get that same pressure in the church that women do. They're not getting those questions. It's, oh, he's pursuing his career. He's making a name for himself. He's trying to get financially stable and secure so he can provide for his family one day. And my problem with so much of it is Jesus was single. Since when is our blueprint for healthy manifestation of being human having to be married? And why are we elevating that above all else? I mean, Jesus was single and seemed to live a pretty epic life. And, you know, Paul says it's better to stay single and not to say that one is better than the other, but, but yes, I do feel the church has really forgotten or not forgotten singles, but pressure singles all the time to get out of that stage of life. And it's inevitable then, isn't it, that if the church has got a focus where singleness is something, perhaps particularly singleness in a woman is something that it is uncomfortable with, although mm-hmm. why that would be the case to be more uncomfortable with that is beyond me. But it does seem to come across that way. And if that is the case, then it's inevitable that if they if the church can't even deal with that superficial level of of interaction, how is it ever going to start to consider the deeper drivers and and experiences and thoughts and 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 all the things that you are living with, not just around mm-hmm. sex, but the realities of the emotional reality of you as a woman following God? The, the church, if it can't get beyond the surface of why are you still single? It's never going to yeah. get to the depth of why are you who you are? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. And I think to your point, I'm always curious, why is this like this? Why is this happening? And I look at the kind of the structure and systems of so much of the church. And it's a very, from the top down, a very male dominated space. And again, I love men. I think men are amazing and we need incredible men of God in, in our world and in our culture and in our churches. However, we have kept women out of sort of the highest level of decision-making rooms. We've kept women out of the pulpit. We've said, women, you stay over here with the kiddos and, but you can't ever don't teach in mixed companies or, you know, so we have men sort of, sort of prompting and controlling the narrative Mm -hmm. and it's one part of the story. And I think to your earlier point of, you know, did I expect to be a voice in this? No, but the more and more I researched, the more I found, man, the most of the content out here about dating and sex and about my body as a woman was given by men. And, and not to say that everything that they have said is wrong. I've read beautiful, beautiful books. Matt Chandler's book, Mingling of the Souls, Theology of the Body by Christopher West, Sex God by Rob Bell, really incredible biblical accounts of sexuality. And yet there's a huge voice missing and it's the voice of the female experience in the church and in culture. And so I think until we 
allow women in those highest levels of decision-making rooms and influence and allowing our voices to be heard as well in the church, then I think we all suffer. I think we all suffer when we only hear part of the story. You're listening to UCB Life Issues, chatting this week with Kat Harris. Her book is called Sexless in the City. You can find out more about Kat by going to her website, therefinedwoman.com. Her message is very clear. The reality is that we are sexual creatures. We are driven by sexual desires and sexual thinking, and we are impacted if we are not guided well or educated well on it, we are impacted by potentially very negative experiences in our faith as we struggle to cope with the reality of sexual desire, the reality of sexual shame, the reality of what if we never get married? How do we deal with life and its urges? Kat's book, as I said, is called Sexless in the City. And one of the things that you carry very clearly is an attempt to define and unpack what the Bible really says about sex. So what does the Bible really say about sex, Kat? <laughs> well, do you have about three hours? <laughs> is this going to be like a, uh, is this like the... BBC version of Pride and Prejudice answer. <laughs> I think I think we need to go for the thumbnail and then we can buy the book. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so for me, going into the scriptures and really, first of all, seeing that sex is talked about often was very healing for me because my experience in the church was as a single person, don't talk about sex, don't think about sex, don't think about thinking about having sex until one magical day when you get a diamond ring on your finger. And then all of a sudden uh, your sexuality is a switch that turns on and then anything goes. And that has not worked. (laughs) It doesn't work for single people. It also doesn't work for married people. Mm. And so navigating the scriptures was actually really healing for me. And I feel like a few things, if I can just touch on is first, for me, go, starting in Genesis 1 and seeing God breathe life into humanity and say, let us make humans in our image and our likeness, and then calling humanity very good. Everything else in the God story and in the God creation accountant in Genesis is good. It's this rhythm. It's good. This cadence, it's good. But then we get to the climax of creation, humans, and it's very good. And I think for me, what was important to notice is what is the text saying and what is it not saying? Because so much in church and Christian culture, I learned, well, the spirit is good, but the body is bad. Mm -hmm. Anything that has to do with the quote unquote flesh, you have to put to death. And the more and more research I did, that's actually not Christian theology. That's rooted in Gnostic dualism. Mm -hmm. That's a compartmentalized version of what it means to be human. But the Genesis 1 text starts off and it says, God created humans in God's image and God's likeness and called called us very good. And so that means God didn't say, oh, well, your toes are good. But when you get turned on and aroused and that happens, like the devil did that, but your spiritual life is good and your intellect is is good, but your emotions are bad. No, God created us holistically. And so. And and that's one of the things that you pick up in the book very 
clearly is because I talked about you talking about um, the lies that play into body shaming. And it's not so much the idea of body shaming that, you know, oh, you're you're too fat or you're you're too mm. short or, or whatever. It is the the body shaming of your body is something that you should be ashamed of. And, and you right. I mean, you talk about things the, the way in which men and women young men and young women that was played out differently for them in in mm -hmm. your experience growing up so girls at summer camp had to cover up lads didn't we have to recognize that we are whole creatures it's what we do with our bodies that is the issue not what our bodies are yeah absolutely and i think unfortunately we often start the god story in genesis chapter three where everything goes upside down, right? But the story starts in chapter one. Story starts in chapter one. And then we, we move all the way through the New Testament. And the New Testament says that my body is a house for the holy. My body is a house and a temple for the spirit of God. God doesn't reside in bad or disgusting or broken, terrible things. So why are we teaching this message that our bodies are really bad? I think it, I think it has to often do with control. Um, but yeah, it was so healing for me just to see from right out of the gates that God created me holistically. So that means my sexuality and desire is a part of being human. And there's even something about those things that reflect the God image mm -hmm. in me. Mm -hmm. And then a few other things was, you know, we go, then we just go to Genesis two. There's so much in those first few chapters where, you know, Adam and Eve meet. And the only response that Adam can think when he meets Eve is to burst into poetry and song. And this sigh of relief at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then we get to Genesis two, where the two come together, there's marriage, they they leave home and they, they leave and cleave verses, and then they know each other. And the Hebrew word there is yada or yada. And it's that's the biblical word for having sex. And the yada word is this deep sense of knowing. It's the same word in Hebrew used for God knowing us. And so what I discovered there was, wow, like, first of all, the physical is so much more than the physical. Like sex isn't just about sex. It's this deep knowing, this deep intimacy. So it's not casual. It's not just about mechanics. And the precedence is that this deep knowing from the first pages of scripture is a part of a, a deep commitment. It's like the physical is the manifestation of this deep commitment between these two people. And to me, that felt so much more compelling. And there's so much more I could share about historically what was, what was going on and what was normal in, in Hebrew marriage. But to me, I was like, why are we starting with that? <laughs> mm. why, are, why are we just saying, hey, don't do this. This is bad. And then have a free for all once you're married, like shut it all down. I think it's much harder to teach nuance and to teach, okay, well, our sexuality is a part of us. And in Genesis 1, it doesn't say it's only very good within marriage. No, it's very good. So then I feel like that's really good news as a single person, because then there has to be ways that I can enjoy, embrace, acknowledge my sexual desire, regardless of my relationship status and maintain my values. Of course, shame is a big part of how many people, especially people of faith, 
feel around their sexual desire and who they are as a sexual being. And what, again, one of the things that you questions that you raise and look at in the book is the way in which having been taught this idea of shame means that almost all of us have to deal with some sort of sexual shame, but it also is affecting and is in danger of affecting young people who, having been told to repress and mm-hmm. and deny and even be disgusted by their sexual urges as they have been growing up, then when they get married and, you know, a whole panoply of delights opens up to them, mm-hmm. actually the emotional damage of yeah. sexual shame rolls mm-hmm. forward into that. Yeah, and the the problem is is this this is all just very revealing. These are all symptoms of a core issue that the church worships sex and marriage. So we say with our mouths, you know, Jesus is the one that heals. Jesus is where we find our identity. But when we have a message that says marriage will be your answer for X Y Z. Marriage is the antidote for your sexual urges. Marriage is the antidote for your daddy issues. Marriage is the antidote for your financial woes. All these things we make marriage ultimate. And so when we make anything besides God, God, of course, we are going to experience shame, disillusionment and disorientation because marriage was never meant to answer those questions, but it's just easier to slap something, you know, give, give the, the elusive carrot to single people so that they can keep their urges in check instead of actually acknowledging and dealing with them and say, oh, but just wait till this one day. And then you can, then you can just have this free for all. We're putting our hope in marriage and sex and not the gospel. And then by doing that, we've massively cheapened the gospel. So of course we're experiencing of course, we're experiencing shame in the church because the church has made marriage and sex ultimate and culture has made sex ultimate. So no matter what you have or haven't done culturally or in the church, you're going to experience some sort of sexual shame. It is where you started really, though, isn't it? Where you started on your journey. It is the difference between imposing externally rules on ourselves or finding conviction there comes a point where we have to start to trust our young people, especially them perhaps, although not exclusively these days, but we have to trust people that their relationship and transformation of God in their lives will actually motivate them rather than right. just feel we have to tie them up. We have to let them explore the reality of who they are in God yeah. rather than hold them back for it. Yeah, and man, it is so tough. I'm not a parent yet, but I'm one of six kids and I have Uh, 18-year-old sister and 20-year-old sister. And I I talk with them about this stuff all the time. And I find myself wanting to say, just do this. Don't do this because I've learned hard and painful ways from dating this type of person or whatever. But I know that that doesn't work. I know that that doesn't work. It's the easier way just to say, do this, don't do this. But Parenting 101 is... Kids don't, don't learn by how we do, but how we be. And so I, I wonder what it would look like 
if we started and ended with Jesus Mm -hmm. and it feels scary and I don't want it to feel like a hall pass when I say this, but do we really trust that God is God? Do we really trust that the Holy Spirit moves in the lives of people? Now, this doesn't mean that we should never talk about sex or practical things or how do we navigate this? No, but I wonder if the conversation was more about how do we normalize a conversation about sex and desire in the church, not just with their young people. I'm 36 in the church. I have friends that are in their 40s and 50s single as well. How can we normalize this conversation, take the taboo and shame out of saying words like sex or masturbation or sexual desire or foreplay and really normalize it? Because shame is a breeding ground when things are cupped in isolation and in the dark. So the first thing I think that needs to happen is we got to bring this stuff into the light. We've got to talk about it. We've got to normalize that one of the most natural human experiences is to have sexual desire. And then from there, God, what is your heart? What's your story? God isn't just a, a do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. Like the invitation of Jesus as relationship and kindness and generosity. So how do we step into a God's story that's rooted in heart, not just behavior modification? But as you say, it is a lot easier just to say, don't do this, do do that, than actually to start to explore and unpack it. And perhaps part of the problem is that we don't know what the answers to some of the difficult questions are. Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. really, again, to quote you, really, what's a single girl to do with her sexual desire? Yeah, I think the first thing is acknowledge it. Wow, I am... I am a human, I am a single woman or how, whoever you are, and I have sexual desire. Wow. And I, I'm saying this as, and I have my hand on my heart as, wow, wow, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you've made me holistically. Thank you, God, that my sexual desire reflects part of your image in me. Because I think for so long in my life, I couldn't even approach researching this topic because I thought to have sexual desire was sinful. Mm. I thought to even look at it was wrong or bad or gross, or was me just engaging with my flesh, quote unquote, but no, God created my sexuality and desire. And that is a part of the human experience. So I think first it's acknowledging it, expressing gratitude for it, and then get curious about it. All right, what what is this what is this activating in me? What is it bringing alive in me? What is it that I really want right now? Cuz sometimes we can feel turned on or arousal or that desire and really what I'm wanting is just connection with another person or a conversation or to feel known and seen and accepted. Sometimes it's just, I have a desire for sex. There's a difference between sexual desire and desire for sex. And so I think ways that we can embrace our sexual desire as single people is by having a more expansive three-dimensional view of sexuality. I think the one-dimensional view of sexuality that both culture and church offers is that the only way that I can express my sexual desire or sexuality is through sex and orgasms. So it's just this one, like 
at all of this angst, the only way it can be expressed is through this one act. And so that means if you're a Christian and if you're kind of living by this biblical sexual ethic, that is really bad news for you. You have to shut all of that off until, until you can do this one act. But I believe that sexuality, and this comes from teaching that Deborah Hirsch does in her book, Redeeming Sex. She says, sexuality is the desire that all humans have to get outside of ourselves and connect with lowercase o others. So it's the desire within us that propels us to get off our couch and stop watching TV and go interact with people. It's the desire within us that gets us out of ourselves to collaborate with others. Because what is sex but the ultimate form of intimacy and co-creation and collaboration that can create new life? So if I'm viewing sexuality in this more expansive approach, then if sexuality were a book, then sex and orgasms would be just one chapter. So then as a single person wanting to not shut off my desire, how can I be creative with connecting with that inner desire? I think it can mean a hundred things. I think it can mean have people over for dinner and have everyone put their phones on the table or in a, in a bowl on the table at the door and then be present with each other, eat good food, drink good wine and be present and in collaboration and in intimacy with others. I think this is why music and concerts are so, so powerful Think about going to a Coldplay concert. Why is it that every like thousands and thousands of people are in this auditorium? It doesn't matter what you believe or mm-hmm. how you identify or how much money you make. It's you are coming together and there's unity and intimacy and knowingness because a group of people got together and decided to get out of themselves and in collaboration and create newness and put it out in the world. At the same time, although undoubtedly that sort of creativity can address the reality of of desire, the reality of the, 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 the compulsion for connection that we all have and so on, there is also the fact that sexual desires have a physiological impact on us and how do you, as a single person, how do you explore those without falling into the shame and the um, the struggle that comes because of lust or inappropriate focus for that desire? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think first it, it it starts about acknowledging what's coming up right now and then getting curious about it. All right, whether it's or I'm feeling really turned on right now. I'm having this physiological response. All right. What do I want to do right now? Do I want to masturbate? Do I want to go have sex? Like first letting yourself acknowledge what's, what is it that I want to do right now? And then from there, is this going, is this in alignment with who I want to be? Is exploring my body something that could be a win for me? And I know, I don't even know if you want to go here, but the the conversation around self-pleasure, I think, has been really demonized in the church. And I the question I have about self-pleasure or masturbation is, is it possible to explore my body and stay connected to my body and invite God into that process and not fall into lust, not fall into 
fantasy world or what C.S. Lewis calls the harem within? Is it possible to acknowledge my desire, explore my body and stay present to um, stay present to myself, to God and in that whole experience? And, and I that, don't know that there's a black and white answer no, to that question. I, I suspect you're absolutely right with, with that. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's not just that about masturbation, that very principle that you, you're unpacking there. That also applies to people who are tempted towards, inclined towards using pornography to satisfy mm-hmm. the desires, the lusts that grow within them. There, mm-hmm. there are lots of different relevance. It is about who do I want to be in God mm-hmm. in this moment? That, that's, a, that's a key thing for addressing virtually any temptation, isn't it? Right. Well, and I think even things that we don't consider temptations. So what, let me pause and why am I opening my social media app right now? Why, why am I scrolling for hours on end? Why am I not watching one episode of Ted Lasso? Why did I watch all two seasons in one <laughs> afternoon? <laughs> yeah. And like, can we get curious about, I think there's, there's something about, oh yeah, I want to go on social media or scroll for a few minutes, <clears throat> but to pause and be mindful. Cause mm. I know for me, I'll go on Instagram and an hour can go by and I'm like, oh really? I'm not really, I'm procrastinating work or I'm actually feeling really lonely and I am trying to get something met in this moment that Instagram was never supposed to meet for me or wow, I'm really not wanting to deal with this conflict. So instead of dealing with this conflict, let me just watch 10 episodes of a TV show Mm. and all right. So same thing with pleasure. What is it that I'm really wanting right now? And is this Avenue a life-giving and flourishing way to experience that. Sometimes the answer may be yes. Sometimes the answer might be no. And I think it's like with all these other areas, whether it's social media or even alcohol or how we approach, how we approach TV or whatever, or music, it's like we have space for each other to kind of navigate this road. But with sexuality or anything pleasure related, it's like, we've just so flattened it to a one-dimensional experience and a one size fits all for all people at all time. And I just don't know that that's a helpful approach. And in the same way, I suppose that addresses what happens if the, the golden bullet of marriage never arrives? What if that that wondrous door never flings wide? What if you live your entire life as a single person? Mm-hmm. The only way to deal with the urges, the compulsions, the the thoughts, the reality, the the individual that you are in your sexual nature, your emotional nature, your physical nature, your intellectual nature, right across the board is to actually apply that principle, is it? Even the question of what if I never get married, then what? Well, first of all, I will be very sad if that never happens. That would be a great, great disappointment and heartache for myself. And I know many people as well. However, like marriage is not the be all end all. And when we, when we make it that, we ask questions like, well, then how am I ever supposed to exist fully as a human, if this thing never happens to me, 
So even by asking the question, we have to be curious about what are the beliefs underneath that belief? And some of those beliefs are, it's impossible for me to be fully human if I never experience marriage, if I never experience having children, if I never experience having sex. And I don't think that those are the things that make us fully human. I do think it would be, I would, again, would be very, very heartbroken and sad if that was not a part of my story. However, that is not the only thing that's interesting about life. And I can, I can say an in integrity that I'm, I'm finally at a place in my life where it's the both and we don't like the tension of the both. And yes, I can have longing and desire and long for marriage and long to have babies with my own body and also hold that the tension of, I know that I know that I know that I know that I would rather be single than compromise, than be with someone who's not a good fit for me. And I know that I know that I know that I have legacy calling and purpose on my life. And that has nothing to do with whether or not I'm ever in a romantic relationship. My life isn't on pause until one day when. The reality is that the driver of sexual desire is a core part of who we are as human beings. We have to recognise that it's part of God's creation in us. It's not simply a part of the fall. It may well be that the fall has impacted it, so we now live in a world which has such a one-dimensional view of sexual interaction that it is all about the physical and it loses sight of the complexity that our sexuality brings to us as individuals and as human beings and as people able to interact with the world around us and people around us. So if the church does not effectively communicate God's heart in the sexuality of an individual, are we not in danger of falling into exactly the same trap that the world around us is, is by putting all the pressure of sexuality onto an individual's shoulders? How do we teach sexual integrity to our children and our grandchildren? Surely it is by giving them, as Kat says, that ability to see the transformation of Jesus from within that actually sets what do I want and who do I want to be in him as the guiding light for how we relate to all those temptations, even the ones that we don't call temptation, that are around us. You can find out more about Kat's perspective on all of this and listen to her podcast by going to therefinedwoman.com. That's her website. Her book is called Sexless in the City. And Kat, it has been a privilege and pleasure to explore this with you today for Life Issues. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to UCB. I'm Paul Hammond. Why not join me next week for another Life Issues? And don't forget, you can listen to this one as a podcast on the UCB Player app or indeed wherever you download yours. Good night. <laughs>